so you know it's not a good idea? What? A 6 a.m. podcast after a concert by your favorite band. Mm, mm, that's brave. That's really brave. <laughs> <laughs> Putting aside the even higher lack of sleep, uh, the, the the voice is not quite what I'd call tippy top right now. Uh, after you know two hours or so of wailing along with eighteen thousand other sad dads watching the national. Hey, you know, I, I've I've podcasted on worse. I, I've podcasted feeling worse. It's just the cup of tea is a little bit larger this morning. Yep, fair enough. <laughs> so be, ge- be gentle with me is all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to episode 312 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast of the Matinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Summer is over, people. That's it. I'm calling it. We're closing up shop. It's time for the kids to get back to school. It's time for the grownups to get back to work. It's time for life to move on. The end of summer around these parts also means the end of another season of this show. Every September, I take a break for a month or so. It's often interrupted by some content for the Toronto International Film Festival, but it allows this podcast and your humble host a small chance to recharge. I'm glad to be taking a break. But I'm also really glad that I was able to produce another season of the show. We're still very much in uncertain times where it comes to being able to see films. And even for me, connecting with guests is a little trickier after we all got scattered to the wind for a few years. I'm still not completely sure what this show will look like going forward, considering the labor unrest in Hollywood. But I'm really proud to have another season of this little project in the books. For the season finale, I am super excited because a dear old friend is dropping by the show. You heard her voice in the intro, and we'll hear from her again in just a moment. We are across a wire to New Zealand today and talking to Stevie Taylor. Stevie is here for episode 312, and we're going to be giving you the whole package to close out the summer. We are going to be discussing passages. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Stevie. This is Know Your Enemy. first appeared many moons ago on episode 61 to talk about Pixar's Brave. We learned the first film she'd seen in a theater was A Bug's Life. The last film she'd seen at the time was Hiroshima Mon Amour. The worst film she's ever seen is something called I Melt With You. The unseen classic or essential is the original Star Wars saga, and the film she wished she made was Schindler's List. Then Stevie returned on episode 109 to talk about Darren Aronofsky's Noah. We learned the film everybody else hates, but she digs, is The Great Gatsby. The film everybody else likes that she does not is Dancer in the Dark. The last film at the time to make her cry was Fruitvale Station. In the movie of her life, she'd be played by Carrie Mulligan. And the movie she was watching next was one of those National Theater Live productions of War Horse. Stevie then returned on episode 241, just before... The world closed up. We talked about Les Miserables, the the French film by Laj Lai from a few years ago, not the Tom Hooper joint. We learned the film that made her love of film turn a corner was The Dark Knight. Her first date movie with her husband was The Lego Movie. Her sick day movie is Bridesmaids. The last movies, plural, to leave her speechless, were Parasite and Cats, the actual Tom Hooper joint. 
and her epitaph would be the entire Cerulean Blue speech from The Devil Wears Prada. Stevie, when you go to the cinema, where do you like to sit? Um, I used to be like very much have to be right in the middle of the cinema, but since the pandemic, I am so sensitive around audiences that I try and like, whenever I go to a multiplex, they usually have kind of pods of two or four seats where you can kind of sit away from other people and they're not geographically in the best location in the cinema, but it's (laughs) a small price to pay for not like being around people talking or doing annoying things because Hmm. audience behavior is is so bad. It's taking a dive. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've I've noticed this. Are they the ones um, here? They tend to be on the sides. Like they tend to be kind of like the wings of, of the main Mm. house. Yeah, like we have some that are on the side, but one of the cinemas we go to quite regularly has it kind of down the front, but still in the middle. Oh man, which is really like that's that's prime real estate. Gotta <laughs> um, be hard on your neck. No, like they're not that close to okay. the screen. Like it's still okay. a decent amount away, but yeah, it's not like I'm up in the in the high seats. So gotcha. Yeah. Front as front without I'm being away- absurd. Yeah. Away from people. I I don't really know what's been going on but i've i've been noticing i think i noticed it with um barbenheimer because uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I saw people moseying around with their phone and i don't mean i don't mean using their phone to check the time because that ship has just sailed i realize i have lost that battle uh mm-hmm. and people are gonna are gonna take a peek at their led because they want to know what time it is and nobody wears a watch anymore Except mm-hmm. me, because I'm old. Yeah, I, I noticed like when I was watching Oppenheimer, somebody was somebody nearby was like checking messages or or not even mm-hmm. checking messages, but like browsing their email. And I'm like, yeah. are you not here? Like, wh- what's what's happening? Like, do you not want to be present because this movie is going to carry on without you? So yeah, removing yourself from that situation is probably not a bad idea. Yeah, and there's a lot of people like filming in the theaters as well like yeah that's gotta stop barbenheimer came out like the amount of tiktoks i saw that were like of but like scenes from barbie or oppenheimer and i'm like i want to report all of these like this is just so alien to me that you'd even do that so absolutely no patience for people in cinemas anymore (laughs) no nope 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 okay yep so i'm with you pods pods of two or four away Mm -hmm. from Gen pop. Let's do that. Stevie, if you could go on a date with any movie character, who would you choose? Not a movie character, but if it was a TV character, definitely Kendall Roy from Succession. Um, oh, we're, we're going to need to talk about this. Uh, honestly, <laughs> like all of my, my friends, my husband, they're all concerned about how much I love Kendall Roy. Um, uh, he's like literally on my phone case. <laughs> I love him so much. <laughs> Why? He's just so stupid <laughs> and it's just fascinating to watch. And I think I just also just love Jeremy strong. Um, but yeah, that part I understand it's, it's more, it's like, yeah, it's more Kendall himself that could, that brings me concern because I mean, I don't get me wrong. I love that show. That show's fantastic. And there's so many amazing people in that show doing so many amazing things, but Kendall always had me, uh, concerned for for Kendall himself. 
I think it's just because he tries so hard and makes so little ground and <laughs> I just really just want to wrap him up in a blanket and hug him. <laughs> He's like a rich lost puppy. He really is. And it's beautiful okay. to watch. Okay. Um, uh, are you all caught up? Like, did, did, did the last season air over there? Like, you're, yeah, okay. Yeah. My, my heart was just in my mouth watching that final, like, watching that final episode, but watching that final culmination of that final episode mm-hmm. because it seemed for just a hot second like things were going to work out for those kids and for Kendall specifically but it's like if you give Kendall enough rope Kendall's going to Kendall and that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened it's you know when he got into that situation where Siobhan wasn't sure what she wanted to do I'm like there are there are a lot of people out there in the world who can probably give an impassioned speech and sell somebody on their point but kendall roy is not one of them no absolutely not (laughs) i mean listen on the bright side though i'm sure he'd take you somewhere nice he absolutely would um and that's the thing that i love the most about him is that he has money um (laughs) (laughs) you are a woman of principle i love it (laughs) i really am um but yeah kendall roy ask me anything about him i've got a novel (laughs) Sold. Say about that man. <laughs> no arguments, <laughs> Stevie Taylor. I can't believe I'm asking you this. What is the dirtiest film you have ever seen? Um, I don't think this is like the quote unquote dirtiest film I've ever seen. But my most logged film on Letterboxd is Shame. Um, the one with Michael okay, Cassidy. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is especially disturbing because I think I've only seen it maybe once in the past, like nine years which means that i watched it a lot when i was like 17 or 18 don't know why um i think i could tell you why <laughs> probably wasn't good for the old you development. have painted a picture woman <laughs> but no i i do genuinely absolutely love that film otherwise i wouldn't have watched it a horrific amount of times but it is like one of my top five favorite films of all time um Still mad that Michael Fassbender did not get an Oscar nomination, and I will not let that grudge go, even though it's been like twelve years. <laughs> shame is—I mean, I haven't thought about Shame in in ten seconds, but it's—it's uh, it's a great movie um, for sure. And I think what makes it, you know, potentially a dirty film—it's—it's it's actually rather—it's actually rather arty, very very handsome, um, or, you know, really really. Uh, eye-catching i you could see uh very much where steve mcqueen was going to go with his career like when you yeah use that as a as a next step after after hunger mm-hmm. um but i think what makes it dirty uh it for me was the same thing when i first saw it that made it cold which is the absence of anything approaching love or affection mm-hmm. like when you're watching that movie um, I've forgotten Fassbender's character's name, but w- the, the Fassbender character, um, the whole idea is that he's compulsive, right? Mm-hmm. Like whether whether he's by himself or whether he's with another person, it's not about any kind of connection or affection. It's just a vice. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are made to feel that you know like i remember there were sequences where you kind of get this really quick cut of like the the rush that he had to go through to get off um along you know beyond the actual sex in the movie the the actual sex in the movie is reasonably chaste 
Mm. But the idea of at least three or four times going through his compulsion with him, um, that is rather icky. Yeah, you do not watch that film to feel good. No, Um, you don't watch that film. No, no, it's uh, that's not a that's not like you know one of the earlier questions in this movie in this in this round was what was your first date movie and, and I'd feel really weird about anybody whose first date movie was Shame. I would say yeah. there should not have been a second date. <laughs> Massive um, flag. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But I mean, but but it is a great film. It, I do I do think it like all these years after the hype, I do think it holds up. Yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah, and you but but you said you haven't seen it in a minute. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I just get like I will get shame by putting it on my letterbox even more than it already is on there. <laughs> like it's just concerning. It's like shame, and then it's like the devil is right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not even li- around like likes. That's fantastic. I love it. That's that's hilarious. Okay, ah, uh, shame. Fantastic answer, um, Stevie Taylor. What is your favorite black and white film? Recently. I've been watching a lot of King Vidor films. Um, basically, a lot of the films I watch now are black and white films. Um, and two King Vidor films that I've watched recently are The Crowd and The Big Parade, which are two absolutely stunning silent films from 1925 and 1928. And the cinematography on those is its unreal <laughs> um, for the time in which they were made. So, Yeah. Tell people about that. Like I've I've heard of the crowd. Um, tell people about these movies because I feel like they haven't. Uh, they, they may have been uh, overlooked by modern audiences. Yeah, the crowd is this really. I really don't know how to explain it. It's just because it wasn't even made during the depression. Like it was nineteen twenty eight. It was just before the depression, but it has this really interesting story about a man just trying to make it work in America and trying to make it work in a huge city. And it's got these like just beautiful scenes of like mass production and stuff like that. And just the way that it's shot, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Like this film is absolutely heartbreaking. And some of the stories behind the film are really heartbreaking. Not a great, like not a feel good film whatsoever, but just the way it was shot and the way it, like the things that it had to say about, I guess, the American dream right before the depression was mm-hmm. really, really fascinating. And then the big parade is this huge world war one epic story that I think was like possibly one of the highest grossing silent films of that era. Um, and it is pretty much an anti-war film and mm. it's got like some, really shockingly well choreographed fight sequences and stuff like that. And it's got a beautiful, tragic love story in it. Like, yeah, these films, they're so of their time, but also so ahead of their time. Um, Yeah, a lot of King Vidor's work is like that. So I'd highly recommend I will, yeah, I will have to shake these loose. My my experience with early cinema is sadly lacking. It's kind of like train arriving in the station, the great train robbery, and then it like skips right mm. ahead to wings. So yeah. um, <laughs> I, I definitely need some to do some work there. Uh, and the beautiful thing about a lot of those films are they're short. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I really should check those out. And 
you know, kind of listening to what you were saying there, the idea being that um, they're black and white, but they're, they're, you know, cause that was all that was available at the time, but they're mm. very much ahead of their time. That was, that, that's yeah. what really makes them, oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah, I like that they're, answer. They're really amazing. Like te- te- uh, technological achievements. And also okay. a lot of these films are available in the public domain now because their rights have lapsed. So they're really easy to find on YouTube. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> Cool. Um, I will have to look those up for sure. Um, finally, for now, what is a film that you like but no one would expect you to? I recommend Pain and Gain a lot to people, which is the <laughs> Michael Bay film from 2013. Um, okay. I don't know what it is about this film because I don't especially love Michael Bay and I don't really like the kind of more recent outputs by Mark Wahlberg or – Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but Dwayne The Rock mm-hmm. Johnson had one of my favourite performances of 2013 in Pain and Gain, which was absolutely shocking to me. But I think it's just a really clever and really entertaining film, and it came out at that time when there was a lot of like weird films about capitalism and the American right. dream in 2013, and it ended up being one of the stronger ones, which I am still shocked about to this day. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I remember enjoying it for what it was. Michael Bay is kind of become a cautionary tale when it comes to, uh, you know, films that one person likes. Like if somebody starts really extolling the virtues of Michael Bay, I, I usually kind of form an opinion in my head. But um, oddly enough, like Pain and Gain seems to be this outlier uh, yeah. of of the typical type of bayhem that we've come to expect from great big robots or worlds that are going to end or both. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it's, it's been a second since I saw it. I do remember enjoying it. I do remember it having all of this uh, subversive messaging to it that you would not expect out of a pain and gain film. I do remember it being ridiculous as mm-hmm. well, um, which is kind of uh, part of the, part of the fun. Um, and I mean, if nothing else, it's, it's handsome. Like you get to get to look at some, some pretty beautiful bodies, uh, for, for two hours while, while you're watching all of this, uh, lunacy unfold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who would have thought, I think Michael Bay really needs to go back to that. He needs to, he, he can do well with a narrative and he can do well with some fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Like he, what has he even been doing lately? I haven't. It feels like I haven't. The last thing he did was Ambulance, I think. Oh, uh, yeah, that film. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that film. <laughs> um, you know, like, every, and, and that's the thing. Like for a while there, he was, you know, the the course of a lot of um, discussion and and concern and think pieces and whatnot, mm-hmm. and then he just kind of slipped back. Yeah, he. Ambulance was the most recent one. I don't think he didn't do he didn't do that third Bad Boys movie. Uh, oh, he did a he did a movie about Benghazi, which went nowhere, of course, because nobody really wanted to watch that. Yeah, Michael Bay. I mean, you know, I, I think he was on to something with Pain and Gain. He should probably make mm-hmm. that his next the next act of his career. I agree. Come yeah. on, Michael Bay. It's time for your comeback. <laughs> it is absolutely. Uh, I'm going to get talked into watching Ambulance by somebody you watch. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't actually want to make it happen, but somebody's going to be like, no, it's really good. And I'll be like, all right, fine. Um, all right. Pain again. Love it. 
Um, well, there we go. That's more about CV. We will learn um, even more when we uh, have her back for another round. Um, but for right now, we have a film to talk about. Um, we normally try to stay spoiler free on this film. However, um, this film merits complete discussion um, because of things that happen towards the end. So uh, it's I, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not the usual suspects. Us talking about the end of this movie isn't really going to ruin the entire experience for you. So do be warned that we are going to talk about this film as a complete piece. Um, uh, and do see it if you can. Um, the new slang for episode 312 is Passages. Passages is directed by Ira Sachs. It's written by Sachs with Maurizio Zacharias. It stars Franz Rogowski, Ben Wishaw, and Adele Exachopoulos. Passages is the story of Thomas, Martin, and Agath. That's Rogowski, Wishaw, and Exachopoulos, respectively. Thomas is a film director who wraps his new project as the story begins. It's a film within a film that gives our movie its name. Later that night, at a party, he meets Agatha, a school teacher who dances with him, takes him home, and ultimately begins an affair with him. Problem is, Tama is partnered and living with Martin, and when he goes home and tells Martin what he's done, Martin is less than pleased, as most of us would be. So it goes that Tama begins a relationship with Agatha while trying to hold together his relationship with Martin. Sometimes when I map out these episodes, I need to point my guests towards the films I want to discuss and get them to go see it for themselves and experience the story and shape their thoughts. This time, though, when I reached out to Miss Taylor, she said she'd been actually been dying to talk about this film with someone, uh, which interested me because I hadn't seen the movie yet. So given that it's the end of a season, I'm just going to keep my opening volley simple. Pop quiz hotshot. Why? What about this film dug into you so deep that you really wanted to discuss it with somebody else at length? I'm not usually a vocal cinema goer, like I won't talk at all during a film. I uh, have on- 13 years of blogging that would <laughs> uh, say otherwise. <laughs> no, during the film. but um, Gotcha. On two different occasions, I think, I let out a very audible, oh, for God's sake, because the main character, Tomar, is the most chaotic character I've seen for quite some time. And if he can make a decision, he will make the wrong one. It's just, this film is so fascinating because it is so just exasperating to watch. But you also kind of get why it's so exasperating. Like it's, I've not seen anything that I've had such a strong guttural feeling <laughs> towards yeah. quite some time because it just is the most chaotic thing ever. I think, you know, it, w- when you say it that way, what's interesting is, um, you know, we talked earlier about succession and about Kendall Roy um, and the, the, there's a lot of decision-making on succession that really just leads you to dread whatever's coming next uh, this is not that this is not like you're, you're correct. There there's every time Tama makes a choice, it's the wrong one. Um, and there's a lot of times where he just opens its mouth and you're like, stop talking, please stop talking. <laughs> Nothing good is coming. Just stop talking. But at the same time, there's something 
curiously sweet about him. Um, I mean, he's not a sweet person, really, but there's a sweetness to him where you almost want to take him under your wing and and help him be better. And you certainly mm. want to you certainly want that for everybody else around him. Like you you certainly want to go out of your way for um, a goth and for um, Martin for sure. But yeah, it's 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 strange that for. Uh, you know, a a series, a brief series, because it's not a long movie. It's like ninety minutes. A brief series of chaos that you're there for the chaos because it all comes with this uh, strange decision making. I think for me, what I really wanted to talk about as soon as I came away with was watching how hard people will try to hold on to something they care about, because um, mm-hmm. that's really what Tomah keeps trying to do in this movie. Like he is while, while he has a difficulty understanding the human emotion and the human psyche and certainly the human heart, his his flaw is that he wants everything, you know, he wants Mm -hmm. to be with this person and be with this person and then both to be okay with it because he cares about both people. So he assumes they should care about him enough to let him explore it's it's not because he's unhappy like he doesn't actually want to drop a bomb into his relationships it's just that he doesn't want to let them go you know whether it's agath or whether it's martin at from in, from moment to moment you can see that he's doing why what he's doing because he still in his own way loves them and that to me was fascinating watching how hard somebody will hold on, will hold tight to someone they care about. Yeah, exactly. Like you can see that he gets, he's still getting love from both Martin and Agat, but it's, it's a different kind of love and he, he needs both and he wants both. And he just, he wants to, you know, have his cake and eat it too kind of thing, but mm. you can understand why? Because he's going through some sort of, I don't know, a bit of a, I don't even say it's a crisis. He's just going through something and he doesn't really know what he wants. And then he's given this opportunity to direct his life in a different way, but he wants to go in that direction whilst also clinging on to everything else that he has. Like he can't just let it go. And that's really evident in the opening scene where he's, directing this film and he just can't let anyone be like he everything needs to be exactly the way that he wants them to be like he's a very perfectionistic director and I think it was so genius the way it sets up the film that way Mm -hmm. and you get so much about the character from that like he's he can't he can't let anything go he wants everything at once in that sense it is both really exasperating to watch but I'm sure even though he does come across as a bit of a bit of a dick <laughs> for most <laughs> of the film, um, you do still have the sympathy for him because we've all kind of been there before where we're faced with a decision and we're like, well, what if we just have everything <laughs> instead of having yeah. to decide? And he's out there trying to have it all and he's yeah. not really doing very well at keeping it all together. <laughs> you enjoyed this movie. Yeah, yeah, I really really enjoyed this film it it is probably like I guess it was because I saw it during a film festival screening 
and those kind of audiences will always have a bit more of a reaction <laughs> to sure. these kinds of films. Um, but it was actually a really nice experience kind of reacting in a more emotional way towards a film with a bunch of people and gotcha. we were all just – a lot of deep, heavy sighs during watching this film. <laughs> um, I, uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing because I saw it with a, a sparse crowd. It was me and maybe a dozen other people. Um, and what I thought was interesting was I, when I went to see it, I was actually in a mild degree of pain. I had really kind of wrenched my back. Uh, the, the, I think it was the day before. And sitting in a, in a theater was not a great idea. I was just kind of, kept kept stretching my back out like I kept leaning forward onto the chair next to me and of course just to really draw attention to myself I was sitting really down low too so Mm. everybody was probably wondering what's with the guy in the front left who just can't sit still but the reason why I bring that up is because as uncomfortable as I was I still was very much in this movie and didn't want to leave it because it brought me into this story that um was you know so gently chaotic it's not it's not chaotic in the way that like a michael bay film is chaotic but Mm. this film it's it's a it's a personal chaos that i think we've all experienced we all have that one friend who just can't stop with the drama in their Mm. life either by their own doing or by the people who they they bring into their life so i was really there for it and and fixated on everything I was seeing from moment to moment. And it packs a lot into, into 30 minutes. Like, I mean, it's not like he really goes off on all kinds of crazy tangents. He's just ping ponging back and forth between Mm Agat and Martin, but still watching that from moment to moment, um, despite my physical discomfort, I thought was just enthralling. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is largely in part to the three performances mm-hmm. in this film um especially Franz Rogalski because I feel like he really embodied that role and made it something that we can all kind of relate to whether we see parts of it in ourselves or we know someone like honestly I just if I could like jump into that film I just wanted to tell him like what are you doing um let's weigh up some pros and cons let's let's think for a second before we jump in and do something else um but yeah he he really embodied that role and then Ben Wishaw brings this really like gentle tenderness to his role and then Adele Exarchopoulos she's I mean she's amazing and everything she's in but she also brings just a a tenderness and she is pretty much the victim in the film but she doesn't come across as this kind of like damsel in distress kind of type like just having those three actors in there was genius perfect casting, and they really really bring it home watching all of them was fascinating but at the very least with adele and with wishaw i i was familiar with them so i i'm i wish i've seen in all kinds of things by now adele i recently re-watched um in a film from earlier this year called the five devils did you see that one 
No, I, I don't think that's available here yet, but I okay, really want to see that. Yeah, it, it, it was a, you know, it's one of these ones that's like making the the art film circuit. So it'll probably pop up in, in some of your cinematechs or on like some of your platforms like movie or that kind of thing. But it was it was incredible because in that movie, it's the same sort of case where um, she is, you know, she's in a, in a relationship who's not where it's not exactly what she should be having so it's kind of like oh we're doing this again um but yeah watching watching him in this film uh drive all of this chaos was incredible i think it was really interesting um the way the whims of tama are parceled up as love you know as 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 we get older and i know i've I know that that's relative between you and myself, but as we get older, um, we realize more and more that what we thought was love as kids and what we thought is love as young adults is not um, really what love is. Um, mm. You know, that, that love is actually more selfless than it is about making the selfish choice and watching him do that. The first time he tells Agath that he thinks he's falling in love with her, I remember thinking, how? You've spent yeah. like three dates with her and two of them were about stupid. Um, you know, wh- how are you, how are you fo- to, to say nothing of the fact that you have lived a great deal of your adult life. Cause you're cohabitating with another man. Um, you know, as, 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 as a gay man, like how are you throwing all that to the wind and falling in love with this woman? Uh, watching that, watching everything that he does parceled up as, but I love them was really kind of terrifying and also really engaging. Yeah, I think it was in that particular scene that it really kind of dawned on me. I was like, this man kind of has the emotional intelligence of a child. Um, Mm -hmm. And he does kind of have that very childlike mentality. It's like, I'll get what I need at any kind of cost, you know, and it doesn't matter who I hurt along the way kind of thing. And I thought, it was just so genius how Agat was a school teacher and many of the scenes that we see outside of her relationship with Tamar are her teaching these children. Yeah. <laughs> so she's spending all day with these children and then she's going home to this man who just, he doesn't know what he wants. Um, and he hopes that if he says, I love you, that that person will stay and ignore all of, his bad features and stuff like that. And I just thought yeah. that that was particularly a fascinating kind of juxtaposition. Another film from earlier this year that we did an episode about, uh, and we did an episode about the five devils too, but another uh, uh, film from earlier this year that we did an episode about was you hurt my feelings where, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the husband and the wife are having an argument on the street and he tries to basically pull the pin on the argument by saying, but I love you. And her answer is, oh, well, okay. <laughs> it's, it's that same sort of idea, except just, you know, much worse because like you say, like he's not very emotionally intelligent. I don't know about you. And I could not find this clearly spelled out in my admittedly very cursory research. Is Tomas supposed to be on the spectrum? I questioned it for the entire film. Yeah, like it's not specifically spelled out, which I I feel like if he is, that's a cheat. But if he's not, I would I would suggest he go to a specialist and maybe, you know, do some research on that. 
Yeah, I mean, at the very least, he is extremely narcissistic. I have one key flaw to pick with this film. That would be the one that he is on the spectrum, but that's never touched upon and just left Mm. to us to decide. Because, I mean, that comes with its own complications um, and Mm. is a story unto itself. But where I first thought about that and I thought, okay, we're going to touch this eventually and it just never came back, was when he comes back from his night with Agat and mm-hmm. he sits down on the bed where um, uh, Martin is still asleep. Like he's just waking up um, and he's like, oh, I had sex with a woman last night. And you can tell that this is like a bombshell in Martin's world, but he just says it so matter of factly. So I remember that moment going by and then, and a mm-hmm. lot of other moments watching Toma navigate these two relationships and how he does things like he doesn't understand that he can't call or he doesn't understand that he can't just drop by work. I mean, listen, part of that just comes with modern masculinity. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I found myself, I was like, Oh, he's, he must be on the spectrum, but he, that's never discussed. I was going to bring up that scene when he just comes home and he's like, Oh yeah, I had sex with a woman last night. Would you like to hear about it? And it's like, hang on a second, maybe your husband doesn't want to hear about this. Like, it just seemed like this complete disconnect. Um, And he does that quite a few times in the films. Like, yeah, I don't know whether it's just a lack of emotional understanding about just talking to people in general um, that you care about kind of thing. There does seem to be this, yeah, huge disconnect between himself and other people's emotions. Like you mentioned that you saw this at a film festival. Was, was anything about that brought up? Wow. No. Huh. And it, yeah, I did quite a bit of reading about it earlier today. Strange. That's, that's really so strange. Cause I mean, yeah, it's, it's the impression that I like, I'm, I'm at a point where I try to believe in people. I'm like, okay, you're not just a jerk. You know, there, there is something chemically about you that makes this a challenge and, you know, you have to work with it. But, you know, you mentioned him coming home and him saying, oh, yeah, I had sex with a woman last night. Would you like to hear about it? My first instinct was, oh, OK, I guess they're really open about their sexuality mm. and, where you know, have a very open polyamorous relationship. No, you know, like Martin gets up and leaves and walks. I was like, oh, OK, no, he did. OK, all right. But just, yeah, that that hard shift of being with somebody else and then just coming home and talking about it as if it was like, you won't believe what happened to me on the way home. Um, Yeah. yeah, That was, that was fascinating to watch. He is an incredibly interesting character. And again, just the way that he goes about things is so exasperating, but Mm -hmm. I feel like if anybody was playing that character apart from friends, Rogalski, like that would all just get lost. Like, yeah. 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 He definitely brings out the, um, the sadness and the sweetness and the innocence of it, of, mm-hmm. of not understanding why, like that, that's the thing. It's, it's not, he's not hurtful because he's hurtful. He's hurtful because he's kind of naive, uh, mm-hmm. about what is and is not acceptable with people. This movie looks beautiful. This it movie really does. Made me want to move to Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 there's, there's a 
at least two sequences, maybe more, where we follow Tama on his bike through the streets. The second one, I was actually, I found myself getting tense because the second one seems to be set up that he's going to crash. Yep. Yeah, you know really the, the, the the second time the second time that he rides his bike, I don't. I think it's just because he we really watch him picking up speed. Um, but he's riding around. He's got this coat over a tuxedo, and he's riding on a bike. So it's just this weird look. But I, I really was holding my breath, thinking he's going to get hit any second now. Sitting in these beautiful apartments and cottages and dining rooms and and cafes, I was really really smitten with how this movie looks. Yeah, this film is so European, like yeah. quintessential European. Um, but also, like, and this film is very lived in. Like, I loved the apartment that Tamar and Martin shared because you can just tell the production design on that thing. Like, it is such a lived in space. It makes sense for the two characters. And even the guts, um, kind of share house that she lives in that's also like all of these spaces are very lived in very european spaces if there's anything that i could like say that you could take away from this film it's just very european <laughs> not to bring things back to succession again <laughs> but it's it's the opposite of that it's yeah. you know, where you get where you get this real level of wealth where the houses are just structures to host these people sitting around doing nothing and eating and talking and arguing bullshit. Um, the kinds of dwellings that characters like Toma and Agat and, and Martin would be in would be, um, you know, certainly smaller. Uh, Cause mm-hmm. that's the thing like these movies, they're, they're, they're almost bumping into walls. That's how, that's how small they are. Um, but they are, um, very, very lived in the kitchens, the, the bedrooms, you know, everything like you say is, is very, like, I would almost believe that they shot in somebody's apartment. You know, like that's the thing the the styling of it, they certainly didn't, but the styling of it is done so well that you believe that you've been invited into somebody's home. We haven't talked about Aga too much. She does a lot with sometimes very little, um, watching the way that she goes through all of this uh she has a scene late in this movie where she breaks your heart with a look uh you know like like she's just laying on a bed coming to grips with the decisions that she's made and you're just watching the anguish on her face and in her body um I I was I was really really taken by what this movie gives uh, Adele to do. It's such an interesting film because in any other film, Adele's character would be the kind of character that would be vilified because she is the other woman kind of thing. Like she has come between this beautiful married relationship and everything like that. But the fact that this film has time and it also does not portray her to be someone who isn't aware of her actions or is you know just I mean to be honest Tamar really does put her through far more than anybody should be put through in such a short amount of time um if I'm like reading the film's timeline correctly um yeah she she does come across as a woman that's just kind of been caught up in this man's weird narcissistic 
world, but you do see the effect that that has on her. And it's, yeah, if I'm I'm thinking of the same scene that you're thinking of, like that scene is absolutely devastating to watch. Yeah. We'll put a point on it because we already raised the spoiler flag earlier. Uh, Not only does Toma begin a relationship with Agath, but um, they get pregnant. And (laughs) once again, he goes over to Martin to tell him, and it's a really, really terrible way to tell a person you were once in a relationship with that another woman is that, that another person is pregnant. Um, but we watch them. All right, we're going to try and make the best of this. You know, we haven't been together too terribly long. Um, this there, there's this shadow hanging over our relationship because your ex is still around, not because they're still around, but because you're keeping them around, but let's do this. You know, um, and and she like she's she's actually uh, reasonably excited about it. She wants him to meet more of her friends. She has her family over, and that goes about as well as you <laughs> can imagine. But she just she pushes all her chips onto his square and makes a very very big bet. And you, on the one hand, you're like, yeah, I would do that too. You know, if if I was if I was in your position. Um, because you care about this person, but when you watch that bet lose mm-hmm. um, in several different ways, it's heartbreaking to see. I mean, she really does try to make it work and have a good go at it, but I think Tamar just sucks up so much energy in a relationship. Like it, it doesn't become a relationship between two people. It's a relationship between Tamar and someone's there. <laughs> so yeah. you can tell them that he loves them every now and again kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I just, I thought it's really fascinating and all the things that happened to her, uh, they're not ideal. <laughs> they're not ideal no. situations kind of thing. And we don't actually, honestly spend that long with Tamar and Agat being quote unquote in love or anything like that. Like, no, that no, is we don't. Condensed. Yeah. And then it all just starts going pear shaped pretty quickly. And you can see that she's trying to really hold on to whatever it is. I don't think that she is really aware of what it is because it's so hard to predict what Tamar's going to do next. And I, I, yeah, I think she's really just trying to make the best of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 that, like she cares about him. That's that's the thing is that it's where where this eventually goes, and we'll get to that in a second. But where this eventually goes, it's clear that um, you know her having a child in that moment is not something that she needs for herself. Um, it's just, it's, it's where she finds herself. It's where she finds herself with this person and she's done the math in her head and thought, well, you know, why not? You know, like I, Mm -hmm. I, we can do this. I can do this. Why not? Um, you know, that, that's, that's why she can defend him to her parents. Um, that's why she can try to build a life with him. Um, until ultimately that, that does not, uh, pay off. And we'll come back to that in a second. Do we want to touch on the sex in this movie? It's actually funny because every single review that I read today in an interview, it goes on about the sex. Like, it's the only thing in in yeah. the film. And to be honest, it's all incredibly hot, but um, <laughs> it's a very small part of the film. And I do 
I, it is interesting because obviously it was given an NC-17 in America and then was released unrated. And I read that the director just felt that there were things that could only be said during a sex scene. And when you think about the film, there's, there's the one scene, the very big scene. Right. And right. I think that that actually does speak a lot about the two characters. In that sense, it was refreshing to see something that is very raw and very open, but also really does actually convey characterization and add something to the story. But I think overall, just dismissing this film as that film that has a lot of sex in it is pretty reductive, to be honest. Yeah. I, I think a lot is made about that scene because because it's a, a queer sex scene. If it was a mm-hmm. if it was a heterosex scene, we probably wouldn't say mm-hmm. all that much about it. It's longer uh you know where where sex scenes are concerned it's it's a little Mm -hmm. lengthy you mentioned raw in the way that we stay with it you know it's Mm -hmm. definitely not meant to arouse or titillate or anything like that because there's no there's no cutting there's no score uh you know we're we're just we just happen to be in in bed with these people um Mm -hmm. while this is happening it's strange that in 2023 we're having a lengthy conversation about a film sex scene and it happens to be a gay sex scene you know if it Mm -hmm. if if it it was a heterosexual sex scene i don't think it would have that much conversation around it um and, and and what's more is that there's so much more going on in this movie that mm-hmm. you know beyond beyond the sex um you know including his including the sex between Thomas and Agat and the scene between Thomas and Martin there's it's it's a small piece of mm-hmm. the movie so it was that was the thing is that I thought it was really strange to me um how much is hung on this film's reputation as being a movie with a lot of sex where I'm like there is so much else going on in this movie uh, of, you know, emotional chaos that for it to get hung up on, on being the movie with the sex. The interesting thing that I will say about the sex scenes and in particular, the scene between Tamar and Martin is the way that it's framed. Like the sex scenes are so, I hesitate to say voyeuristic, but the way that that particular frame from behind, it is, it is incredibly voyeuristic, but it also, doesn't feel like creepy and kind of domineering in a way that maybe the sex scenes in blue is the warmest color felt like yeah. kind of thing. Like, so I, I did, yeah, I did kind of more resonate with the sex scenes in this film, but again, yeah, I think the discussions around it, are just so overhyped because it is such yeah. a cool, but a very important, part of the story oh absolutely you know we get to the culmination of this movie and there's a scene in a restaurant between agath and martin and it might be one of those heartbreaking things i've seen mm-hmm. in a long long time for both of them um this is ben wishaw's best bit of acting in the entire movie um like you can see him you can, you know, to steal the old line from the Simpsons, you could almost see the moment where his heart breaks in half. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does everything he can not to have some sort of an outburst 
You know, like he is the polar opposite of Tama in that moment, in that, first of all, he realizes it is not about him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's devastated for her. You know, even though what she discusses was something that was a matter of choice um, and, and something that was a matter of agency, he knows that this is something that is going to affect her. And he is, he's kind of the opposite of Tamat. Like he's taking on responsibility in that mm-hmm. moment of, of not, you know, I don't know, like not having better conversations with her about him, not warning her about him, which is like, he feels responsible. It's not his responsibility. He's actually, he's completely blameless in this situation, (laughs) but just because of the way he's wired, you watch him just like struggle to keep Mm -hmm. it together. And Agat, same thing. This is coming hot off of her having that moment of heartbreak while she's listening to her partner and his ex have sex in the next room, she's very much at peace with her decision, mm-hmm. but she, same thing. She is broken to have to tell Martin, Oh, thank you for this very, very, very kind, sweet, absolutely unnecessary gesture, but I'm, I'm not keeping the child. Um, mm-hmm. that, that scene to me just was like the whole, like that gutted me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that scene was just so effective because Tamar's not present and there's very few opportunities in this film where he isn't there, um, yeah. kind of yeah. taking up the space and the air and the energy as he does in these relationships. But it was interesting to just see the kind of collateral damage of his, decision making just sitting there in this cafe and like any outsider or just look like these people are having a normal conversation but it is yeah the most heartbreaking thing to watch because you've got this woman who's just had her life upended and then she's getting it back together and then you've got this man who thinks he knows somebody and thinks he knows the way things are going and it's just completely upended for him as well and it's yeah that scene is really, really difficult to watch. It's a masterclass, like in in mm-hmm. direction, in acting, in composition, because there's very few times where we have both of them in the shot. We we oftentimes mm-hmm. cut back and forth. Um, you know, it, it's it's incredible to watch. I think the last thing that I, I took away from this movie was it's kind of this interesting look at an open relationship or a polyamory or, or, or that kind of thing. Like we're, we're not, we're not actually watching one of those things. We're watching this one person try to continually go back and forth between these two people, not having any respect for how much he's upending their life. Like Martin, Martin finds somebody who's actually probably really good for him, you know, yeah. and that person gets shuttled aside because he gets dragged into Thomas chaos as well. But it's, it's amazing because the more we get further and further on, you know, we're led to believe that maybe things aren't so bad. If you have more than one person, like maybe you're, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there's more possibility. Maybe your heart is capable of loving more than one person, but you watch something like this. It's like, no, you know what? I'm just going to stick with this one person because yep. <laughs> this all, you know, while it seems enlightened and it seems modern, it's just like too much. Yeah. I mean, I think at its heart, this film is really about, 
kind of the trials and tribulations of impulsivity because it oh yeah everything that Tamar does is it's an impulse it's not a well thought out thing it doesn't come out of a place for respecting how other people might get hurt just because he wants to go and do this thing and I think that that makes it all the more difficult to watch because he's for most of the film he's just acting on impulse and it's yeah. getting him into some really bad situations but he can't stop acting on those impulses you know for some people in the world it is possible to love more than one person but th- that mm-hmm. comes with your heart having an abundance of respect for for all for other people and you know being able to respect that you know everybody's needs are getting met and tama is mm-hmm. not that kind of pro- i feel you know in a, in a in a in better circumstances, I feel like Martin and or uh, Agat may be that person because I feel like their hearts have an abundance of respect and could open themselves up to more people in their orbit. But yet, yeah, Tama is not that person. No, absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> um, well, we end every uh, review here on the Matinee Cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Stevie Taylor, what are you hanging on to from uh, passages? Um, probably Tamar's crop top that he wears to his meeting <laughs> with Agat's parents, because honestly, just that is an iconic moment. It's actually so funny. It's painful, but it's so funny. But I just would love to have that to know what it's like to have the audacity <laughs> to <laughs> just go into a situation like that, not look in the heart. That's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Good, good work. Um, I I mean the sun's coming up so you can now see the room that I'm in. I want the books. Every like mm. all of those rooms are just chock a block full of books, and I'm like, I bet you five bucks these are all really really interesting books because mm-hmm. uh, they're all really really interesting people. Even Tama is as emotionally stunted as Tama is. He's really smart, so I bet you five bucks he's got some really really good books on those shelves. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they, they cram a lot of them into those very small European apartments. Um, really we rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Stevie Taylor passages one to four. What do you got? <sighs> I think a 3.5 for me. I'm, I'm with you. I, I really enjoyed this movie. I will probably come back to it as the year goes on mentally. I don't, see myself watching it again for quite some time (laughs) but um i i do hold it back a little bit for not specifically spelling out if tama is um is on the spectrum or if he's just a colossal asshole because Mm -hmm. those are two very very different stories um and and you know require different understandings from the audience and i think you know it's brief it's 90 minutes like you had another Mm -hmm. five minutes to talk about what what his reality is um hey uh maybe we're wrong maybe you think this film's a masterpiece maybe you think this film is trash uh let us know what you think ryan at the matinee.ca twitter i'm matinee underscore ca uh facebook letterbox what do you think of passages um we are going to take a very quick break and come back on the other side so come on back We are back. 
It's episode 312 of the Matinee Cast. We're closing off another season. She is Stevie Taylor. I am Ryan McNeil. We've been talking about Passages, um, a really incredible new film from um, Iris Sachs that is more than just a movie with a lot of sex in it. Um, it's the other side. It's the time where we go further down the spiral and talk about uh, complimentary viewing uh, to our main topic. Stevie, uh, why don't you get us started? How many films did you come up with to go along with uh, Passages? I've got a film and I've got a book. Okay. Oh, I fit. Speaking my language, woman. I love <laughs> it. Um, so get us started with the film. What do you think is a film that somebody could go on to after uh, Passages? Um, so this is a film. It's probably not like an exact match for themes, but it is really interesting because it was made in 1933. And it is about a polyamorous kind of relationship. Thing 1933. Between, in 1933. Oh, I, I, I thought know. they didn't. I thought they didn't invent that until 1967. No, this is kind of like one of the last hurrahs of pre-code era, and it's a film called Design for Living, which is based on a no coward play. Apparently, it's not the most faithful adaptation. Apparently, his play is even more wild than the film. Um, it's directed <laughs> by Ernst Lubitsch. Against Lubitsch, and it stars Miriam Hopkins, Frederick March, and Gary Cooper, of all people. And it's basically about these two friends who are both males. Um, they happen to meet this artist named Gilda Farrell, who's played by Miriam Hopkins, and they both decide that they're in love with her. But because they're both friends, they find that very awkward and they don't want to kind of compete with each other. But she also feels like she's in love with both of them equally. So she decides that what they're going to do is they're going to have a gentleman's agreement and they're going to have a completely platonic relationship. Um, and she actually explicitly says in the film, which is just wild for a 1933 film, she's like, we're not going to have sex. We're just going to be friends. Um, and obviously that does not work out. Um, and it's just kind of her going back and forth between these two men and their friendship is getting more and more just strained by this thing because obviously they want to end, one of them wants to end up with her, but they don't want to see the other one hurt kind of thing. Um, and then basically the film kind of goes like that. And then she ends up marrying someone completely different <laughs> um, because she's like, Oh, I'd, I maybe that, I, I would think that there's yeah. a understanding of dibs at certain point. You <laughs> yeah, know? No. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's such a fascinating film because mainly because it is a film from 1933 and it, really makes you sad for what we lost because of the production code because this film is kind of it's it's a bit spicy um and it's a, just a really fascinating look at these three people trying to make a very unconventional relationship work and it doesn't end as like a cautionary tale it doesn't end with her I guess dying in a car crash or something like any of mm. the production code films about this would have you believe like it ends in a nice way. And mm. yeah, I would highly recommend it as just a film that you would not expect to be the way it is from when it was made. 
You have me very, very curious because I've been trying to watch the films of Lubitsch um, mm-hmm. as, a, as a devotee of Wilder and having his filmography almost complete. I made the next step and went, went on to Lubitsch. Lubitsch, you know, working when he worked, a lot of his films are kind of tricky to track down. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so, so, you know, the fact that you got to see it and I'm, I don't know where I can find it uh, already kind of has me on my back foot, but the way you describe it and everything about it that I'm seeing, this movie looks incredible. Yeah. It's, it's truly one of a kind. Um, yeah. And I will say it isn't one of Lubitsch's kind of strongest work. Like it doesn't have that kind of zany humor about it. It is very funny and it does have some very funny moments, um, yeah, I mean, like you describe it this way, and it doesn't exactly sound like a romp, but no. um, that's yeah. Oh, I, okay, I got to see this. Thank you for for drawing it to my attention. I really, really need to get my hands on it at some point. Um, my first one, um, I think, is kind of an obvious choice as well um, when it comes to um, three people in one relationship. And I just rewatched it the other day. I went back to 1962 and watched Jules and Jim, the Francois mm. Truffaut film um that film where all three of the points of this triangle jules jim and catherine are uh symbiotic and and in you know when the, the when the soldier returns there's this rekindling of their um triumvirate there's attention you know you, you there there's some things that are being left unsaid but i feel like it is um, just so, so full of life. And even though this, you know, anytime you get three people into a relationship, it can be complicated. I feel like this one, it's, it differs from passages in that there is a lot of love from all three people, you know, mm-hmm. in passages, you can see the love from Tama and Agat for, uh, sorry, you can see the love from Martin and Agat for Thomas. His love for them is very, very strong drained in his own Mm -hmm. way so watching something like jules and jim where there's this warmth from all of them um i i think is 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 amazing and it holds up i watched it the other day it's it's fantastic you've seen it of course right yeah it's it's been a long time since i saw it but yeah i remember being quite probably first year film school or something like that (laughs) honestly i think it was (laughs) of course it is it's like a fixture in first year film school yeah yeah (laughs) That was one that I felt like people could go on to and also just see something warmer, see something mm-hmm. where there's three people and there's actually warmth and affection between all three. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's out there. It's, it's on, if you, if anybody listening to this has criterion channel, it seems to be like perpetually on there a little bit easier to find than design for living. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you have a book to recommend to me. What do you got? Yeah, um, so it is Conversations with Friends by Miss Sally Rooney, um, which I believe was her debut novel written before Normal People. Um, And I recommend the book over the recent TV adaptation because I think this, this book's strength is how internal it is. And it's basically the story about four friends who just have this very fluid relationship. One begins an affair with the other. There's hints about an affair between the other two, and then two of them are exes. It's just a very chaotic kind of group of people, and it's 
told with that classic kind of Sally Rooney charm of very insufferable (laughs) characters making very odd decisions um but this one is just yeah it is so interesting because it is made up of a lot of discussions and a lot of internal monologues that I don't think were really conveyed all that well in the tv adaptation at least not in the way that the normal people adaptation really worked and I don't know what kind of went wrong with conversations with friends um Maybe it was the casting, who knows. But yeah, I would definitely recommend the book because it is, yeah, this very fascinating story of just people, four people who happen to be together at this same time and they don't necessarily have a lot in common with each other, but they have this very Hmm. fluid relationship based on impulsivity. (laughs) That's incredible. Uh, I mean, first of all, you never need to twist my arm all that hard to get me to read a book usually you just need to put something in front of me and go read this sally rooney i loved i read normal people before the tv show uh because it was one of these books that like a lot of people were talking about so i was like okay let's let's see what's going on and enjoyed it to to a great degree uh felt that it was adapted really well um as a, as a show i i don't think that that was just covid brain talking uh mm-hmm. because it dropped into the middle of our pandemic lives and watching people being able to freely move around <laughs> ireland while the rest of us were locked in place and you know have have these uh you know very very tense uh affairs with with each other uh in their in their young and beautiful life um was not just you know an extension of not being able to do that um well my other um choice for another side um i actually first encountered it as a book and it is a better book than it is a film it's one of these films that didn't really go anywhere it kind of just dropped into august and disappeared have you ever seen a film from 2004 it was directed by Michael Mayer. Uh, it's called A Home at the End of the World. It, st- it stars Colin Farrell, Dallas Roberts, and Robin Wright. I don't know if I even heard of that. Okay. So th- there's a reason. I first encountered it as a book. It's a book by Michael Cunningham, who most people probably know best as the author of The Hours. I love his writing so, so, so much. There's a stack of every single one of his books immediately to my right as I sit here and, mm. and talk to you. He's so um, – he he's economic in his writing. He conveys so much emotion, so much um, pathos, so much um, angst in, in so – clean of a writing style um not you know he's not so stark as like hemingway but Mm. he he's just very very um economic in his word choice and home at the end of the world was the book that i first was introduced to him Uh, i think it was his second book it it came after the hours it's it's very similar to um passages in that there's um two men and a woman and a pregnancy. The difference is that these guys start out as friends and um, you know, they, they kind of all get wrapped up into this relationship together of kind of the three of them trying to parent at the same time, but each one of them isn't always sure about how things have come to be, how they are and is there a place for them and what is their place? It's got its flaws for sure. It's not what I call a great film, but it is a good film. It really Mm. was one of these early ones that showed 
what Colin Farrell can do. Like Colin Farrell at the time was still kind of doing the pretty boy thing of, you know, phone booth and those kind of movies. But mm-hmm. this really actually showed a lot more of his range. Um, I definitely recommend the book. The book is incredible. The book at a certain point, you kind of lose track of the the two the the two boys that are are um, at the center of the story, Bobby and Jonathan. You from moment to moment can lose track of which one is which, but that's by design, and it's it's a great book. It's a it's a pretty good film, but it's yeah, it was one of these ones that was just kind of dropped into the world and did nothing. Interesting. You know, I'm very much yeah. in my Colin Farrell era at the moment. Yeah. Ever since Banshees came out. So I would definitely add this to the list. For me, it's 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 in there with Tigerland as like early indications mm. of what this guy was capable of that uh, didn't get seen by enough people. Well, there we go. That is episode 312 and a whole another season of the matinee cast. Um, I'm so thankful that Stevie Taylor was able to come by this evening slash this morning. Um, come on back on Monday, October 9th for episode 313. We'll start a whole new season. I have no idea what we're going to talk about just yet, but um, watch the feeds. I'll, I'll kind of mention what we're going to talk about and um, we'll start another season of the show. Uh, Stevie, you said that if people want to follow you, the kind of the best thing to do is follow your, your letterboxed or, or, mm-hmm. uh, or are you still on the Twitter? Um, sometimes when I, yeah, that's, that's kind of the general reaction (laughs) these days. You can bug Stevie about what did she think of uh, girl walks home alone at night? My site is the matinee.ca for more audio content. You can find back episodes by going there. Uh, You can also find them in the usual places like Spotify, Google, Apple, uh, pocket cast, blueberry, you name it. I'm there. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on passages can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email me, ryan at the matinee.ca. I'm still sort of on Twitter, matinee underscore CA, and uh, there's always Facebook as well. Stevie, any final thoughts before we go? It's, it's very late. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this has been a great way to end my 27th year because my birthday is in 23 minutes. So. Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> I feel excited that i was able to do it so um thank you please start aging faster it's like i've I've known you far too long for you to only be 27 um just just pick it up just like you know double time it just a little bit for a few years please don't catch up to me but you know let's 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 close the gap um but happy birthday and thank you so much for coming by um thank you uh everybody for listening um for stevie i'm ryan we'll see you at the night